This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the middle of Season 5. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies here in Chicago, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine, and I don't sleep very much. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> <laughs> we also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview, or Dan's commentary on his NCR columns. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod pod at gmail.com. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the recent oral arguments in the Bostock case at the Supreme Court. We're going to be talking about the canonization of several saints in the past couple of weeks, and we're going to be talking about the actions of the U.S. withdrawal from northern Syria and the effects that it is having on that region, and particularly on the Kurds. But for right now, Dan, how are you doing? David, I'm doing well. It's, um, as you mentioned, we are well into the middle of October at this point. Actually, by the time this podcast drops, we're going to be seeing the end of October. So so things are good. Things are moving along. The semester is underway. We're, uh, as we're recording this, in the middle of what at CTU we call Reading Week, which is kind of a midterm break for the students and for the faculty. Uh, we call it Reading Week because it's not a break like for vacationing. It's, it's a time for grad students to catch up on their work and research and readings and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a quiet time. Uh, it's a good time. So yeah, I've been, you know, I've been around doing uh, the things that I do, the meetings, board meetings and, and talks and so forth, and just got back from a back-to-back trip to San Diego for a board meeting and then to San Antonio where I gave a lecture this past weekend. And I want to give a shout out to friend of the podcast, Mark from Texas, who had the opportunity to sit at a table with in between presentations. And uh, he's, a, he's a very big fan of the, the podcast and a, and a great kind of promoter of the show. So shout out and thanks uh, to you, Mark, for, 
for listening and to all of our, our friends who listen on a regular basis and help spread the word about the podcast. And then, yeah, the only other major thing right now is I'm, I'm heading to the UK uh, later today to give uh, another lecture. But by the time uh, folks hear this podcast, I'll be back, God willing, back here in Hyde Park. David, how are you? I'm good. We had a long weekend right before the recording here. And part of that long weekend involved a soccer game. And my son is playing soccer now. He's he's eight, and he is loving it. But he was playing goalie. Ooh, and, that's a high stress yeah, operation. And he he um, he got onto a ball and grabbed a ball, and the referee did not blow the whistle soon enough. And so my son kind of got kicked in the face. Yikes. I, he's fine, and we're fine. The thing that uh, I've been thinking about a lot has been the reaction of the other adults around, particularly the other men. And they're sort of leaning over my shoulder as I was caring for my son, telling my son to toughen up and all that. And, wow. and yeah, and I'm I've been thinking a lot about that. I think I may write a little bit about that, and uh, and I've been praying about that because I think that that speaks to something in our culture that is that is kind of toxic. And uh, he's fine, and he actually got back in the game and scored a couple goals, and so he he had a blast. <laughs> the bruises and wounds are healing, but so we had a we had a good weekend. We're we're continuing to nest in the house and build furniture from IKEA and do all the things that that uh, new homeowners do. And it's beautiful fall weather finally here in Chicago. So I can't be complaining. Fall is my favorite time of the year. Ditto. I love fall. So as as you have been doing all this traveling, have you been doing any running? I know we had the Chicago Marathon. Were you part of that? Sadly, not this year. I did run the marathon last year and had a little bit of the of the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out because I was I was out of town. In fact, on Sunday, I was making my way back to Chicago. And when I got in kind of late Sunday afternoon, um, they were still you know, roads blocked and lots of runners walking around with their medals. And, and f- in fact, as I was leaving O'Hare, there were lots of folks heading to O'Hare to fly home from the race. So they had run that morning and, and were leaving. And it was so it was nice to to see them and to, you know, to be in, in runner solidarity, though. No, I didn't run the marathon this year. Well, and you mentioned a few moments ago, fans of the show, I also just want to give a shout out to Kathy, and I'm not sure if it's Tara or Tara, but they both have written into the show recently with some good feedback and uh, some very encouraging words in one in one case. And I just I want to say again how thankful we are that people are listening and that, that what we're doing is reaching you, first of all, but then also as it reaches you, it, it touches you and makes a difference in your day. That, that, that makes us very, very happy. And we're aware that right now we're two white guys in a room who have microphones and we're sort of shouting into the void. And the fact that the void is now beginning to talk back and say things back and we're beginning to be more interactive with our audience, that makes me very, very happy. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get into the show and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events, politics, issues, things that are happening from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On October 8th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia. At the heart of the case, the petitioner, Gerald Lynn Bostock, is seeking to have the justices decide the question whether discrimination against an employee because of sexual orientation constitutes prohibited employment discrimination because of sex with the meaning of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Bostock case was combined with a similarly aligned case, also on the docket, Altitude Express v. Zarda. 
Both cases look at situations where an employer learned that an employee was homosexual and chose to fire that employee. Up to this point, discrimination on the basis of sex, which Title VII prohibits, has been held as distinct from discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The oral arguments were a bit hard to follow at times, and the distinction between protections based on the question of sex and those based on the question of sexual orientation were in constant play. Now, adding a bit to the confusion on the same day, the court also heard arguments in the case of Harris Funeral Homes v. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The Harris case looks at the question of whether an employer can discriminate against a transgender employee. The Bostock case looks at the question of whether an employer can discriminate against a gay employee. While the two cases are related, to try to keep things more clear, we'll only be looking at the Bostock case today. We may return to the Harris case in a later episode. But for now, David... What was going on in the arguments for the Bostock case? What what struck you? <laughs> so much. And so so as as we have talked about on the show, you're a SCOTUS nerd and I'm a SCOTUS nerd. It's just you're done SCOTUS and I'm the Supreme Court of the United States. And one of the things that my wife and I, who's also a SCOTUS nerd, uh, we've been kind of watching closely have been the various cases over the past five or six years that have to do with same sex, whatever, whether it's the ability to marry or in this particular case, the ability to have employment without discrimination. Discrimination. And the, the cases, Obergefell in the case of, of marriage and now the Bostock case, it's interesting. The oral arguments sort of turn around the same sorts of questions, and they also turn around questions that overlap with transgender bathroom issues. Nevertheless, I think that it's important to remember, and something that we often forget, that whenever a Supreme Court hears a case of this type, it's hearing a case on a very specific question, and it's not looking at the global morality of the case. It's not looking at the general scope of the social impact. It's instead asking one particular legal question, and then it's trying to adjudicate that legal question. Well, and if I may, I mean, it ought to be doing that. But I think a case can also be made, pun intended, that, you know, with the, the politicizing of the judiciary, that sometimes there are actually these factors, it would seem, or might appear, that have to do with ideology or perspective in terms of social implications that do actually sway certain justices. Is that right? Well, yes. And let's look, for example, at a case from about half a decade ago, Citizens United. And Citizens United was, again, arguing a very particular legal question. And the the court was dealing with what was brought before them in terms of argument on that legal question. Nevertheless, both camps, left and right, have made ideological hay out of that decision. Even though that decision was a very narrow decision, a lot has been done with it in the wider public sphere. So you're exactly right that even though the court is deciding on very narrow questions, the impact of the decisions of those questions can be astronomical. And that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at whether or not it is possible to have rumor and innuendo about a person's sexuality affect one's employability and whether or not we can find protections in the law that have been there since the civil rights days that could provide actual protections. And so what's going on here is the idea that, you know, we've, we have had a protection about sex, you know, so you can't treat a woman and a man differently because one is a woman and one is a man, except in very particular narrow cases. But now the question is, can we fold sexual orientation into that same protection? Yeah, well, what's interesting, though, and you you just kind of hinted at it a bit here, my understanding is what's distinctive about this particular case 
is exactly what you're saying, that it's the question on the basis of sex actually not dealing directly with sexual orientation. It's implicit, right? So it's kind of an expansion of the Civil Rights Act. And what I mean by that is, as I understand the case that's being made on behalf of Bostock, it's this notion that because he's a man who is married to another man, he's being treated differently than if he were a woman who was married to a man. Do I understand? That's kind of the core of the argument in terms of applying Title VII. Absolutely. And so let me let me slow it down and clarify just so that our listeners are following. So the argument that was brought basically was if, a, if an employee walks in and says, I'm going to marry Bill in a week, the argument would be that Title VII should protect and there should not be the ability to discriminate whether the, the employee who is saying, I'm going to marry Bill in a week is male or female. Exactly. And that's that's the crux of the argument. And if that argument is legally successful, then what it does is it, it sort of brings the wing of these Title VII protections out from simply protecting people on the basis of their, their legal gender and now begins to protect those that these people love. And that's in some ways, that's an extension of the logic of Obergefell as well. And we can talk a little bit about that if you want. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to be very, very specific, you, you mentioned a second ago gender, but we're really talking about sex, like biological sex, right? Because gender, that gets more into the Harris case in a sense. Like, how do we define that? And what's important here is I, I think this is actually a very, very interesting case, the way it's being argued, because it's not addressing, you know, what is the origin of one's sex, sexuality or sexual orientation? You know, how do we... You know, it's not a scientific argument, these sorts of things. It's really quite simple, in fact, which is that all people are meant to be treated um, equally under the law. They should have equal protection, which is the point of the Civil Rights Act. And so, you know, the argument on the basis of sex here does apply. But I think, you know, because it's a, a gay man who whose case is being heard, there is also this interesting this interesting social sort of history about kind of male privilege, the arguments on the basis of sex famously from, you know, now Justice Ginsburg and so forth, you know, have typically applied to unequal treatment as it pertains to women in in society, I guess we could say broadly. And so I think that adds an interesting layer too, that we're socially, we're not used to thinking about men as a category being aggrieved. And my guess is that those who would be resistant to this case for whatever reason, either on its merits or in the larger kind of overarching implications, are going to point that out. Well, but there, there are pieces of this that overlap with exactly what you're saying. So we have case law that says when a man presents in the workplace as, and I'm air quoting here, too effeminate, that when that man's employment is terminated, that man had protections under Title VII. And so there is precedent here, and that was brought up in part of the oral arguments. But there's another aspect of this, Dan, that's fascinating to me, that when we talk about rights in the United States, we normally talk about rights as inhering to the individual. And let me do a quick hypothetical to sort of explain what I mean. On the other side of of the ideology for me in terms of the gun rights debate are people who say an individual has a right to bear arms, the kind of arms that they are bearing does not change that right. And so that would be the argument that a person who is very, very pro-gun would say, you can't ban an assault weapon because the right to bear arms stays with the individual, and the, the individual may choose whatever arms 
the individual is going to bear. That's the logic of individual rights, and it's not affected by the object of those rights. If we extend that logic now to Bostock, an individual has a right to marry. That was established in Obergefell. And if that's the case, and if that right inheres to the individual, then the individual's choice of object of who the individual marries should not affect the right to marry. Now, let me say that the Catholic Church has a strong teaching that says that marriage is a union between a man and a woman, biological man, biological woman. I'm talking strictly about the legal aspect right. here and how that has been adjudicated over the, over the years since Obergefell and what the effect of Obergefell is. But it's interesting because what this case does is it begins to push against the idea that we can simply talk about an individual right, because when we're talking about something like love, by necessity, we're talking about more than an individual. And that's part of the, the difficulty here. It was also part of the poetry and Justice Kennedy's, you know, majority uh, decisions on on some of these cases that you've named. So let's let's get into it. You know, it's always a bit tricky to try to anticipate how the court is going to decide something um, based purely on arguments. You know, there's a lot of sort of tea leaf reading around who asked what questions, what was their response, what was their mood. Um, there were some controversial moments in these hearings, including where ostensibly liberal justices were even making jokes at, at points that some people took as offensive. And so so it's really hard to kind of decipher. And and, and as we said at the, the top of this, this segment, you know, it's kind of hard to follow at times even. I mean, do you have a sense, wh- wh- where do you think things might shake out? Well, it's tricky because, you know, this will be the first term that we have had now, Kavanaugh, this will be, I mean, really kind of in full bloom. This will be the first year when when we're really sort of seeing the current composition of the court in its stride. And so it's hard for me to tell where that's going to land for exactly what you said. It's clear that Chief Justice Roberts has a concern for the perception that the court is being used as an ideological tool, and he has been resistant to that. Nevertheless, now that the court is so strongly conservative and so strongly sort of biased towards one particular reading of the law, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that majority and that power can hold sway even over the ability of, of Chief Justice Roberts to control it. And it seems to me, and, and this is just my reading at this point, that on the merits, the case seems pretty straightforward for the reasons we've just discussed. And so it's hard for me to anticipate, I mean, I'd be interested to see if there's a majority decision that decides to deny these protections. It, it'd be very difficult to, for it's at least at this moment, difficult for me to conceive of an argument based on the merits that doesn't just suggest that this is a a form of kind of ideological activism from the bench. Well, and we saw some of that in the oral arguments. And so we had justices who were who normally are textualists, and that basically means that they mm-hmm. stick to the words on the page, asking things in both of these cases. And I realize we're only talking about one of the cases, but asking things like, well, what about the massive social impact of this? Like the very, Wrong question, yeah, right, but, for the court. Yeah, but 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 but, a, a, you know, different justices, liberal justices have said that sometimes their judicial philosophy is Justice Breyer, for example, was was very concerned with the social impact of the decisions that he made. But other more conservative justices have tended to steer away from that kind of language. So it was interesting to see a conservative justice using that kind of rhetoric as part of this conversation. And what, what the other thing that was interesting to me was that I I saw bleed over between the two cases in the sense that, you know, a person who is same-sex attracted and a person who is in transition between genders is in a very different space, both legally and socially. 
Nevertheless, because these cases were being heard in conjunction with one another, basically back to back, we saw a lot of overlap in terms of the questions and we saw a lot of just a lack of rigor in terms of keeping the categories clear in terms of what was being talked about. And that's of concern to me because if someone is utilizing, you know, fear about uh, a bathroom occupation as an argument against someone with same-sex attraction, that's lumping together, you know, categories that are distinct. And even though we have LGBTQ+, you know, IA, et cetera, each of those letters has a distinct history, a distinct politics, and you cannot simply say that they have equal interests or that they have that they have equal protections in society. And so these are important distinctions to maintain. They are important distinctions. I mean, the bathroom argument is very interesting for, for, for the question of, of homosexuality and protection of sexual orientation, or protection of rights with an eye towards sexual orientation, because there is a certain irony when you put the, bat, the so-called bathroom litmus test against each of these respective cases that the fear mongering that that centers around transgender women using women's bathrooms as it stands you know women who are attracted to women men who are attracted to men use the same bathrooms already and i don't know i don't have a well thought out argument here it's just i've often thought about this too in terms of campuses that are very strict about single sex dormitories and i'm like well the idea being that they don't you know they don't want some of it might be safety based and which is very understandable and for good reason but but some of it is also kind of a social prudishness we might say you know for religious or secular reasons and they don't want you know boys and girls uh, being teenager young adult boys and girls in 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 these rooms the interesting thing is there's there's the context itself actually lends <laughs> lends to a kind of endorsement of implicit tacit endorsement of same sex activity in 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 those spaces. So I don't know if I'm making any sense other than to say that you know as these questions that you're right apply differently in each case, you know as there is bleed over and confusion, it actually does seem to me to unsettle some of the counterintuitively unsettle some of the the force of the concerns, the, the fear and this sort of thing. I, I certainly don't endorse any kind of uh, bigotry and, and, and fear based on in either context. But for those who espouse that or kind of ratchet up these sorts of fears uh, around bathrooms, for instance, around single sex, you know, spaces, uh, I think that's just something to think about. Well, and you've touched and gestured towards the what we what has been referenced several times in the oral arguments as the parade of horribles. So thinking about worst case scenarios and saying, what if, what if, what if? But one of the things that is coming out from exactly what you're saying is that in all of these cases, we have a, a real kind of friction between the American legal system and what is Catholic teaching and the notion of kind of, you know, the Catholic teaching has specific categories for what men should and can do, what women can and should do, and believes that that's universal and is universally applicable, that runs up against life in a democracy when you have groups that have the chance of plurality and even majority getting legislation and getting protections. And we have to keep thinking through this problem that isn't just there because of modernism, but is in fact there because we're living in a, in a plural world. It's a world that demands that we find ways to accommodate those that think differently than we do. Yeah, if I may, because I think it's important we address the, the topic of Catholicism and church teaching. That's part of what the show is all about. 
So it's, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I do want to say I totally endorse what the sort of the last point you made about we need to continue thinking through this. We don't have time on in this episode or in the segment to kind of get super deep into this, but a shout out to your your other show, which I'm excited to be a guest on soon, and it'll probably drop uh, in the weeks or so after this airs. But I just wrote a book on theological anthropology, trying to think through some of these questions about what is it that is the grounding, the foundation for, you know, in, in off, well, let me put it this way. Oftentimes, these kinds of questions, the questions around, you know, who has a right to what or what is appropriate or not are handled in, in the realm of theological ethics or moral theology. And part of the problem I see with that as a systematic theologian is that it presupposes a lot of the uh, ethical dictates and moral norms presuppose a more foundational systematic theology, a more foundational theological anthropology and understanding of the human person that is itself contextualized. It, it, it is it, There's a history to it. There are uh, sources that form that understanding of the human person. And so the problem, and it, I think it is, a, it is a problem, I'll just be very blunt about it, is that it, our understanding of the human person from a theological perspective, as it's articulated in magisterial teaching, particularly around ethics, has been frozen from the 13th century onward. And, and I mean that quite literally. There are other, it's not just a, an issue around sexual orientation or sexuality or gender identity. It's, it's things as basic as the relationship between biological evolution, which Pius XII even was open to saying, well, we can work with this. And John Paul II famously said that's not incompatible with church teaching. Yet our articulation of the understanding of the human person in magisterial teaching does not actually engage that natural science, you know? And so... So I think you're right. I mean, what I want to highlight, I guess, in, in, in brief and encourage people to read my book, um, I, don't, I don't propose all the answers. I'm just saying there are other ways within the tradition and an orthodox way of thinking about the human person theologically that doesn't necessarily result in the conclusions that we have arrived at right now that is kind of, you know, buttressing uh, an 800-year-old view of the human person, which doesn't align with science. But what I'm trying to say is there are other ways we can think about it and that maybe questions like what the court is hearing right now and, and the implications socially, legally, and so forth shouldn't encourage us to kind of concretize our view all the more or kind of dig in. But maybe it should be, as Pope Francis has called for in Laudato Si and elsewhere, you know, a moment of dialogue. And in Laudato Si, Pope Francis says we need to dialogue with science. We need to dialogue with philosophy. We need to dialogue with cultures. And so, you know, I think it's a learning moment. And that's what I see as a theologian lacking sometimes in and when I say magisterial teaching, I'm talking about the exercise of pastoral teaching on the part of both the Bishop of Rome as the, as the universal teacher and pastor of the church, but uh, bishops' conferences, individual bishops in their dioceses, and then very rarely, you know, 20 times in history, you know, an ecumenical council. So there are different levels of church teaching. Not everything weighs the same. Um, I just want to state that for the record and for our listeners. That's a real danger. People think that it's all there's a flattening of value, but we believe in a hierarchy of truth and different values. But the point is, stuff that comes out in in terms of formal authoritative teaching. That's what we mean by magisterium. The bottom line is, you're 100 percent correct to say the church's view of sex, gender, marriage. Right? I mean, it gets complicated because we're talking about a sacrament as distinct from a civil contract or a civil covenant. All of these things, though, are informed by 
a worldview that I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it needs to be aggiornamento. <laughs> and, and what's fascinating to me about what you just said is that we can we can make a similar argument about the American legal system where the sense of the person is frozen in 18th century thinking. Yeah, that's right. And 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 we. You know, given the fact that we have had a revolution in philosophy, a revolution in the way that we think about the self, a revolution in the way that we are able to communicate with one another, a revolution in, you know, basically the the, the whole notion of even who gets to be a person in our society since those documents were written, I think that you're right both on the Catholic side and on the American jurisprudence side. We're due for an aggiornamento, we're due for a, a sort of revisitation of these basic questions of the self and what rights mean with regard to the self and what rights might mean collectively. Uh, I think that we're ripe for a moment of, of beginning to think about non-individual rights, particularly in the face of climate change. Laudato C might help us think through that. And, and as we said, you know, we're, we're out of time for this segment, but these are questions that I hope that we can continue to come back to. If I can just flag one last thing, given that this is a good segue to our, our next segment about the saints, is that John Henry Newman, famously one of the, the most brilliant theologians of the last two centuries, one of his masterworks is a, is a very important treatise on the development of doctrine in, in the Christian church. And so this newly canonized saint is a great patron of the notion that actually Fides Corn's intellectum continues, that faith continues to be understood. We keep seeking greater understanding of what it is we say we believe, and that, and that doctrine does develop. It has, it always has, it is now. And I think it's a challenge to, uh, to our sisters and brothers to, as Jesus says in the resurrection, as John Paul II always liked to quote, and as Pope Francis has lived in his teaching and ministry, be not afraid. Well, and with that, let's get into a discussion of John Henry Newman in our next segment. But for right now, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together and talk about current events through a lens shaped by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, Pope Francis canonized five new saints. The canon of saints now includes four more women, St. Dulce Lopez Pontes of Brazil, St. Mariam Teresa of India, St. Giuseppe Vanini of Italy, and St. Marguerite Bays of Switzerland. Additionally, the Holy Father canonized St. John Henry Newman of England, who has received the bulk of the media and popular attention before and after last week's liturgy. Newman, a well-known convert from the Anglican Communion and an influential theologian, is a unique figure in that he is widely admired by self-styled conservatives and progressives alike. By contrast, the four other saints, all women, are not well-known outside of their home countries. So, Dan, first of all, who are these saints, and what is significant about this canonization? For all the saints. Okay, I'm very sorry that I just subjected everybody to, to that terrible rendition. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's important to realize that there were five saints canonized. I think sometimes, you know, when there's a kind of a group like this, they get they, other saints fall through the cracks. There is a gender dimension to this, as, as you said, that... A pure 80% of the saints canonized were women, and they got maybe 5% of the attention. I, I, that might be generous, actually. So let's begin just a little bit, you know, kind of a quick, who are they? What's their deal? As you mentioned, one of the things that's striking right away is that, that there's a global representation here. So we have uh, St. Dolce from, uh, from Brazil. She's the first female Brazilian saint. And this was, you know, something that 
was seen that the Brazilians have taken great pride in. There were something like 60 Brazilian bishops that were in attendance. Um, there were like 385 bishops at the canonization liturgy. Part of that's because there was a critical mass of bishops and cardinals around because the Synod on the Amazon is going on. And of course, Brazil is is located in that pan-Amazonian region. She was a religious – she's been referred to as uh, Brazil's Mother Teresa because she dedicated her life for the poor. And she, like Mother Teresa, grew up in, in a kind of context of privilege but it given her, gave herself over to uh, this vocation, this work uh, of Christ for the poor. She died not that long ago actually in 1992 and uh, her her case for canonization was open pretty quickly actually. And it was Benedict XVI uh, just about eight years ago that beatified her. So it's been a it's been a quick process for her. Interestingly enough, the president of Brazil was originally supposed to attend the canonization liturgy, but did not. The vice president of Brazil was there in attendance instead. Part of that, I, I think there are a lot of ways to read that. One major reason is that a lot of attention around this synod on the Amazon has been in the spirit of Laudato Si and integral ecology. And Bolsonaro, the president of, of Brazil, is notoriously, I don't know, what's the best way to describe it? How would you describe it? I mean, not good to indigenous peoples, maybe is, is the nicest way to put it, and and seems to be pretty apathetic about the Amazon's ecological context and situation, including the the fires the, uh, the, that have kind of been raging in recent months, um, the deforestation and so forth. So he, he was not there. Maybe in the end that was for the best. Let me just run through these other saints really quick. We have St. Uh, Mariam Teresa, who was from India. Um, she too cared for the poor, cared for those who were sick, lepers, and so forth. She founded a congregation that of, of women religious that cares for family. So that's kind of like their, their focal point. And they have a number of communities around the world that run hospitals and schools and, and attend to the needs of, of poor families in particular. So really a great example of, you know, Christian living. We have uh, St. Uh, Jessapina. Oh, I'm gonna mess, this is my Irish coming out, uh, <laughs> my inability to pronounce anything Italian. Um, let's just call her St. Vanini, or her last name. She's an Italian, the first... Um, Italian from the Rome region of Italy to be canonized in over 400 years. So I don't, I don't know. Those Romans haven't been as holy as they <laughs> once were <laughs> or maybe as politically connected. Again, we see some kind of uh, – we, we see a kind of continuity here. She was She's the third uh, woman religious of, of the group, also, again, caring for the poor. I think you see a, a constant theme here, and this is emphasizing Pope Francis's vision of church, vision of Christian living, what he's really emphasizing is not merely one's individual personal holiness, but holding up people who put their faith into action, particularly for those at the margins of society. The fourth woman was a laywoman from Switzerland. She was somebody who worked in the parish. She, as Pope Francis pointed out, this is a different sort of priority in his holding her up as somebody to be venerated universally. She was not uh, in religious congregation. She did have some concern for the poor, but she wasn't like the other three women religious. Her kind of example, as Pope Francis in his homily pointed out, is embodying what he lays out in, uh, the jo in Rejoice and Be Glad, his exhortation on holiness, in that she lived her life in little ways, little kind of signs of holiness and care and concern and love for others 
and, and is a model of kind of like an everyday sanctity. Well, and so let me ask some questions about what you just said, because in, in your descriptions, it sounded like there was a lot of politics and you mentioned like, you know, the politically connected Roman possibilities, but also, you know, the connection between a saint's life and the writings of a pope. But my understanding is that that's not the way that canonization works and that canonization should be based on miracles and those sorts of things. And so am I, am I misunderstanding the process or is there more to it than what maybe I've heard? So I, I don't think you're totally misunderstanding it. I think the latter is true. There's more to it than you've heard. So it has become commonplace to emphasize something miraculous. Usually it's two miracles, you know, um, as kind of the price of admission to the canon of saints. That practice is is a pretty late development. That's not the way that saints have been made. And we'll call them being made in the same way that a cardinal is made um, because it doesn't really change anything. the, the term itself, canonization, simply means to be added to the canon. Like we talk, we can talk about the canonization of sacred scripture. Which books count in the big book? Like which which books of the Bible are included? So, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not that the process of canonization changes anything about the saint. Rather, it's the church recognizing something which was already true and making it sort of an official part of church understanding. That's exactly right. And actually, what it does is it makes it puts them on the universal calendar, liturgical calendar for the church. It includes, in other words, when the Bishop of Rome adds somebody of great sanctity and Christian living to the canon of saints, what he's doing is saying that this person we recognize is worthy of veneration, not just in the local church, in their diocese or in their region or country, but everywhere around the world. And so the way that saints have been included, I mean, there are, yeah, it has become incredibly politicized and and there's been a lot of financial financial capital required and it's a long oftentimes the process of canonization is is a long process it involves investigations it involves documentation it involves gathering you know narratives about the person's life and work and the in, the impact of that person in the local community sometimes it involves the exhuming of one's body lots of different things that require a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of people time, and so forth. So here in Chicago, we've talked before about the canonization of Sister Thea Bowman as one example. And that process has been a years-long process. But what I'm hearing is that it starts with a local veneration. It starts with a group of people who are like, this person was important to our to our space, to our time. And there's something about this person that the universal church needs to recognize. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, that's part of, in order for the process to move beyond, yeah, just to move in general, that has to be demonstrated, well demonstrated. And so, you know, in each of the the four women that I mentioned, there, were, there was the, the way that technically, theologically, canonically, we talk about it is, is the cult of personality, which sounds, sounds terrible, but it's, the idea is that there is a following, there is a devotion, there is an, a, an admiration for the person because of their good works, because of their recognized sort of holiness in life and that the community, you know, sees this person. There's a cult of, of veneration. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say cult of personality was also a rock and living color song back. Was in it the really? Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, and so it moves from kind of a regional veneration to something, something global. So to the point about what does this have to do with the Pope, the Pope can make anybody, can add anybody to the canon. And that famously happened uh, with, well, Pope John Paul II basically expanded the canon tremendously. I mean, he was he was canonizing people left and right, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over the time of his pontificate. 
Pope Francis, likewise, waived the standard practice for miracles for some of his predecessors, for instance. You know, we had the canonization of John the Twenty Third and John Paul II. You know, and, and my understanding is that there were some, uh, you know, the presumption of miracles I think there might have been one in the case of one. I don't remember if it was Paul VI or John XXIII. It's it's actually immaterial because it's not – I actually think it's a problem that that has become kind of the standard litmus test, that we look for something that's absolutely miraculous. And the reason I say that it's a problem is because it leads to magical thinking and it mis represents, I think, the purpose of the veneration of saints in its origin, which is, as the letter of the Hebrews reminds us, is to emphasize the great cloud of witnesses that accompanies us, that serves as role models, that inspire us, that guide us, that inform us. And what's happened over the centuries is that we've reduced this dynamic vision of the communion of saints, which includes all the baptized living and dead, all the baptized yet to come, and not just the capital S saints. It's reduced the communion of saints to only the capital S saints, and they become basically our, you know, our inside women and men. They're our middle people who just run errands for us, like Anthony of Padua, you know, finding your keys. Well, the way that I've talked about it with my Protestant friends is, is sometimes they'll say, well, you, you pray to saints. No, we don't pray to saints. And I'll say, do you have like a prayer chain or prayer warriors in your church? And they'll go, oh, yeah. And they'll, they'll name somebody. Just That's like, exactly it. It's exactly that. It's just that they, you know, you can physically go and talk to them, whereas we prayerfully go and, and ask for their intercession. But that's, you know, and, and you've talked about magical thinking a moment ago, and we need to be careful of that. At the same time, we also don't need to diminish the fact that the saints are powerful intercessors and that their intercession is an important part of our spiritual life. And so, you know, there's a balance here. And I think I think having an expanded canon of saints is a useful thing in the sense that, you know, we can we can actually have, you know, in the case of my patron Genesius, I feel like I have a relationship with Genesius and that I I understand some of Genesius's quirks and thankfully Genesius understands a lot of mine. But that kind of relationship is is I think an important part of this. Well and I think what you're emphasizing is exactly the point. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's the point that a number of theologians have made in recent years too, which is your your point to your friend, you know, to Protestant friends about, you know, prayer groups and this sort of thing, that is what the church teaches. It's what Lumen Gentium, we get it echoed in the third uh, Eucharistic prayer, you know, that scattered though we are throughout the world, we're united in the Holy Spirit to baptism. And that's true this side and the other side of life. And so, you know, that's true that we... What's nice about the canon of saints is that we are introduced to the stories, to these individuals that can, that we can build a sort of spiritual relationship with in a way that you're describing. But the magical thinking is thinking that they, that they have some kind of individual power as opposed to recognizing that you can also continue to have a relationship with your deceased grandparents or, you know, a, a parishioner who was charitable and and whose way of life is, is a good model of Christian living. And so, I mean, they're of the same sort. And I think that's really important too. People sometimes, again, the, the miraculous, while very inspiring at times, can also be distracting. I think that's the thing we need to avoid. The other thing too is the saints who were canonized more than 500 years ago it's very unlikely that they went through the same kind of process that, that saints go through today. We know that, that it's changed and developed. And there are lots of saints who were added to the canon for whom there are no recorded 
intercessory miracles and that sort of thing. So I think my my beef is really with the kind of the miracle thing taking a disproportionate amount of attention and people getting fascinated with that, you know, as if that proves this person's in heaven. That's the way it's sometimes described. And it, that what what does that even mean? I mean, that's another segment some other day. But I think the key thing for us is recognizing that, yes, they are our intercessors. Yes, they are people with, with powerful lived examples who are con- who continue to be connected to us in the communion of saints through our, through our baptism, through the Holy Spirit. But they're not the only ones. I mean, what you're talking about is the hope of relationship that is at the heart of the gospel, that our relationships do not end with death and that death has, in fact, been conquered. Absolutely. But let me, let me shift from that, which I think is an important idea and one that I would love to take up at some point in a later, in a later episode and just quickly shift to being devil's advocate or, as some of my friends say, devil's avocado. Um, By the way, devil's advocate comes from the process of canonization. Okay. That's where the term comes from. And it has to do with in the investigation of an individual who is being considered for admission to the canon. There is somebody who plays the role of, quote unquote, devil's advocate, trying to make the cases, the arguments, the reasons why this person was not holy. And so it's it's the, yeah, that's, that's an actual thing that comes from that process. That is so cool. I did not know that. Thank you. Uh, but so then let me do that here. So we have just talked about the fact that John Henry Newman has gotten the bulk of the coverage against these four women who have also been canonized alongside him. Sometimes when I'm talking to my more conservative friends and the subject comes up of ordination of women, the, one of the arguments that is made is that women can't be priests, but they can be saints, and we've got Mary, and so they're much more powerful and they're much more venerated, and that it's, it's much cooler to be a saint than it is to be a priest, is sometimes the argument that I've heard. Okay. So, given the fact that— It's a that, weird argument. I'm yeah, just laughing because I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Go yeah, on, but, but given on. the fact that sometimes that's an argument that is made, first of all, how would you speak to that argument? And I, I feel like you've got an answer to that. But also, given what we have seen in terms of just the attention given to Newman over against the attention given to these women, does that actually play out in, in real church life? Great questions. My initial answer is it's all fruit salad, brother, all fruit salad. By which, I, by which I mean apples and oranges all chopped up and mixed together. I guess it's cool to be a saint. I mean, obviously, we should all strive for holiness in, in Christ. And so I'm, I'm 100% for that. I don't know what it means to say it's cooler to be a saint than to be a priest, particularly because— I hang with weird trash. What can I say? <laughs> but, well, particularly because, interestingly enough, most saints were priests— And that is, I think, what you're getting at in talking about the disproportionate attention that Newman has received, which is that most of those images of the canon in the E that's true as well with the five that we have this week have been part of religious communities or have been ordained. And so um, most of, you know, there's a disproportionate number that are men and there are I want to say it's virtually, it's not true that there are no lay men and women, but it's virtually none. So that's why it's significant that we have, you know, Marguerite Bass from Switzerland, for instance, who's a lay woman. But again, that's 20% of all the saints that were canonized this week. I think one of the things that Benedict XVI and Pope Francis have done, and to a lesser extent, John Paul II has done, because most of his saints, he did canonize a number of lay people, but again, mostly religious, one of the things we see here is that 80% of those canonized are women. And I think what's important about the canon of, uh, of saints is that you have, you know, more and more people, the, the, the goal should be more and more people 
that reflect the global church that ordinary Christian women and men can look to as identifying with in the same way that you talk about your patron saint, you get each other as it were. I, I think that's really important in that, you know, there needs to be some equity because when you look at who the capital S saints are, the argument starts to fall apart of your your friends, which is, well, if that's true, then why are there so few women saints? Why are there so few lay women saints? And and there's lots to say about that. I, I really would recommend to our listeners, if you're interested in this question, probably the best book over the last 30 years is a book by Professor Elizabeth Johnson of Fordham University called Friends of God and Prophets. And and there she she really looks at the history of the communion of saints and particularly from a feminist perspective, you know, how how do we understand, how do we make sense of the disproportionality of men and women in the canon of saints? What does that mean, et cetera, et cetera? So back to my fruit salad point, I, I mean, we don't have time to get into the question of, you know, who should be admitted to orders, but I would say that that's a different question. I think there's an equity question. There's a There's a question, too, that goes back to the fathers of the church, to the patristic era, about you know, can women be saved, to put it bluntly? And it has to do with with the incarnation. If what is salvific about the word becoming flesh is the maleness of Jesus of Nazareth, then women are not saved. And if we look at that, you know, and that was rejected. That was rejected by the fathers of the church. They said what's salvific is the humanity, the corporeality, the the materiality, the whole of, of the person of Christ, what theologians today will call deep incarnation, that, you know, it's the whole materiality, the whole humanity of Jesus, and that includes, you know, all women and men, and ultimately, as St. Paul would say, all of creation. So um, I think it's a similar sort of question, you know, does the canon of saints actually reflect our belief that women and men can equally participate in the holiness of God and be intercessors, be models, be guides? And I think there's some correction taking place. We see that here proportionately, and it's one of the reasons why I'm glad you and I have spent our segment talking about the four women in, in general and not, you know, there's lots and lots of great commentary out there about John Henry Newman. I'm a big fan. I scratch my head sometimes at how he can appeal, like what what is so appealing to some more conservative thinkers. And, and my, my hunch is that they're obsessed with what I would call a kind of Roman over Anglican triumphalism. And probably we're so gleeful to see Prince uh, uh, Charles, right? Is that? No. Prince, yeah. Prince Charles. Right? Is that the prince? Well, also Tony Blair. Tony Blair. Oh, yeah. To- yeah, the Tony Blair thing. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, his royal highness was in attendance uh, in Rome. But yeah, yeah, Tony Blair converted to Catholicism after be- being prime minister of England. Yeah. In any event, um, I-, I-, I don't think it's just that. But I do think at times, you know, t- two of Newman's masterworks were on the development of doctrine and on consultation of the faithful and matters of, of doctrine. And so those are two things that the same people who admire Newman for what I would call maybe more conservative interests also reject about, for instance, Pope Francis or the syn- synodality and that sort of thing. So there's, there's a certain dissonance there that I don't quite understand. So we'll have a chance to come back and talk more about this as time goes by, I'm sure. But for right now, we ask for your prayers and the prayers of all the saints, and we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalton. Yeah, you know the story. 
So President Donald Trump has made a decision to unilaterally withdraw American troops from northern Syria. This is a significant decision because for years, the United States has been working with the Syrian Kurds in that part of the country. They are a significant ethnic minority, and they have been instrumental in the battling of ISIS and the defeat practically speaking, of ISIS forces. They have given their lives and their energy and their time to assist the United States in this effort. They have, however, also been, for a number of reasons, viewed and uh, view themselves as the political uh, enemies of, of the Turkish government and of Turks. And that is due to, and we can get into this, a longstanding issues, a longstanding history between the two. Over the summer, there was an agreement made between the United States and Turkey for the establishment of what we might call the Northern Syria Buffer Zone. The idea was that Turkey would agree to not attack Syrian defense forces that were on the border. However, this has all collapsed as of October 7th when Donald Trump announced his approval of a Turkish offensive the White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, indicated that Turkey will, quote, soon be moving forward, unquote, with military operations in northern Syria. She further stated that, quote, the United States armed forces will not support or be involved in the operation. And the United States forces, having defeated the ISIS territorial caliphate, will no longer be in the immediate area, unquote. That was her statement and assessment. Yet there may be more to unpack here. Many observers have noted that this will not only mean a likely resurgence of ISIS in the area, and indeed, we've seen evidence that imprisoned ISIS leaders have now found release in the wake of chaos. Actually, hundreds and hundreds have been fleeing from prison. They've just been let go. So if if you're a fan, this is <laughs> maybe a bit not, I don't know, it seems apropos if you're a fan of Ghostbusters, when they shut down the thing and all the ghosts start running away, or if you're a fan of the Batman series, when the asylum is released and, and all the you know, the, the prisoners are escaping. That's kind of the scene we have here. But it also threatens the civilian population of Kurds in the area because the Turks are seeking to eliminate them. David, what should we be thinking about this? There's so much going on here. And first of all, just to talk about the Kurds and why the Kurds are in the area and why they don't have a state of their own. So in the Western meddling in the region, which you can, you can look at any number, you can look at India, Pakistan, you can look at any number of places where Western politics got in and created kind of de facto states on the ground that completely ran roughshod over the ethnic lines and the historical realities. The Kurds are one of the many populations that got caught in the middle of that. And so they have been literally in a no man's land for for decades and decades and decades. So in the early 20th century, you know, the Kurds were part of the conversation to create their own state called Kurdistan. And that was quashed at the Treaty of Luzon. And so when that happens, all the Kurds basically, you know, they have a, a unified ethnic identity, but they've got no geography to go with it. And they're caught between a state that is called Syria and a state that is called Turkey. And they don't fit politically into either of those states. And so if you look at any other of the, you know, if you look at uh, Israel-Palestine, if you look at India-Pakistan, we understand the dynamics of what's going on here. And now they were also instrumental in helping us to to defeat and to push back Islamic State. And now with this most recent decision, the United States has sort of unilaterally turned its back on both of those histories with devastating consequences and with the possibility of genocide against the Kurds. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely terrible. And for the reasons you've mentioned and for many more, I mean, in effect, what we've done is take advantage of, of this population. They have been tremendously 
effective forces in pushing back ISIS. It, it's this goes back to the Obama administration, where in the wake of George W. Bush's administration and in, in the two wars that he inaugurated, including the absolutely frivolous war of Iraq, that w- that taste was still in the mouths of the Americans, including President Obama, who did not want to send troops, did not want to create another war, even against ISIS in Syria. So. You know, it was this partnership, our training, our support, air support, all sorts of other things. But it was really the Kurdish fighters on the ground that made, you know, at least for a time, defeat of ISIS possible. I mean, I think that's really up in the air right now. It's, it's I, I think we're going to see an increase, a, a resurgence of, of ISIS. So what has that done? Well, a couple things. One, I, I think it, it really jeopardizes our credibility on the global stage. Who is going to want to work with us on anything if we're going to kind of unilaterally decide on a whim that we're going to abandon them, right? It is very clear that the U.S. presence in northern Syria with the Kurds, even though it was a small presence, we're only talking about a couple dozen you know, forces, as it were, has been the determining factor in protecting this population. So that's one thing is that, you know, can we be trusted uh, as an ally? And and that's, again, further being eroded. The second thing is we have pushed our, you know, at least for a time, maybe one-sidedly as it's been revealed, at least from the Trump administration's perspective, we've pushed our allies into the arms of an enemy of the United States, which is Bashar al-Assad's government, because now they needed some assistance because, you know, Erdogan in Turkey is coming in and killing them, like you said, potential genocide. So they've you know, they they are now seeking assistance from this dictator in Syria. And third, as we're recording this, there's a New York Times alert that says that Russia said its troops were patrolling in northern Syria, a sign that it was moving to fill a vacuum left by the U.S. withdrawal. So now Russia's moving in. This is a mess. And there are so many lives at stake. And it's it's I think the ramifications, David, for political instability on a global scale is tremendous. I don't know yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I do. And so a decay of relationship with Turkey, we've got 50 nuclear warheads currently stored in Turkey. And so securing those is going to be paramount if we have a destabilized relationship with them. The destabilization of that particular border region where Syria, Turkey and Iraq all come together, there's tremendous political problems that could arise from having basically creating the equivalent of another Afghanistan in that area. Because you have, in the same as Afghanistan, you have deeply entrenched ethnic minorities who know the ground and are difficult to defeat if they become our enemies. And so far, they've been our allies, and they've been very effective allies. But if we drive them, as you said, into the arms of an enemy, the worst possible outcome would be that the Kurds look around and they they see that their best possible alliance between the Syrians and the Turks is to ally with the Islamic State. Because then we have ground-trained fighters who have good guerrilla tactics and who are effective warriors who are now working against us in an entrenched indigenous region. And I mean, so again, I mean, we there. this speaks to what we've said several times on this program in that we've got no diplomatic foresight. We've got no trained foreign policy experts who are helping. And in fact, the experts who are speaking out, both military and diplomatic, are being completely ignored by this administration. It's a problem up and down the up and down the line. And the craziest thing is how Donald Trump does not listen to the professionals, does not listen to the experts on this, like you rightly said, but instead takes the word of 
known dictators and just kind of despicable leaders like Erdogan, for instance. I mean, I know Turkey is an ally. Turkey is a NATO state. However, there are lots of questions about, you know, how Erdogan is, is you know, first of all, this potential genocide that's playing out is is deeply troubling. But there's stuff at home within Turkey that's deeply troubling too, including refugee issues, including, uh, you know, his own sort of perpetuation of leadership and power, consolidation of power, including as well the potential connections he might have had to covering up the assassination of a Saudi national who was a permanent resident of the United States, lest we forget about that whole episode. And so reports suggest that it was Donald Trump who was on the phone with Erdogan, who Erdogan simply said to him, you know what, I'll take care of it. You don't have to do it. You can send your troops home. And like the idiot that he apparently is, Donald Trump said, oh, great, you can do it. It's like, you know, the fox knocking on the door of the chicken farmer's house and saying, oh, you know what? You don't need to guard the chickens. I can take care of it now. And the farmer's like, great. I, I have other things to do, you know? It's so insane. And it, I get really worked up about this because there are hundreds of people who are dying. And the consequences, I mean, this notice just now about we will see by the time this episode drops, we'll learn more about what Russia's game plan is in all of this. But we already know that Russia is supportive of Syria. It's deeply, 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 deeply troubling. And this idea of the ghosts or of the, of the, the criminals, uh, in, you know, in Gotham just running out of this jail that was being guarded basically with support from the United States, you know, we just freed, in effect, Donald Trump just freed all these ISIS fighters. Well, and, and so let me, let me extrapolate that. And part of the problem is when we, when we step away from good diplomacy, when we step away from deft military action, when we step away from those things, we create the possibility of indiscriminate violence. And in fact, you know, that becomes the only recourse on the table. Well, let's go bomb them or let's ally with those that would simply bomb them and would not care about the nuances of the long history of politics that is there. And I just want to want to reference the catechism in uh, paragraphs 2313 and 2314. Yeah, I've heard of it. Non-combatants, wounded soldiers and prisoners must be respected and treated humanely. Actions deliberately contrary to the law of nations and to its universal principles are crimes, as are the orders that command such actions. Blind obedience does not suffice to excuse those who carry them out. Thus, the extermination of a people, a nation, or an ethnic minority must be condemned as a mortal sin. One is morally bound to resist orders that command genocide. And what we have is Turkey wanting to classify this long this long bereft people as terrorists simply for existing and use that as an excuse to bring massive violence against them. Well, if I can just add a nuance, yeah. I generally agree with you on like 99.9%. I do want to say that part of the long history that you're referring to is, the, you know, the, the Kurds, the, there was a political party that goes back to the early part, not the early part of the 20th century, but earlier in the 20th century, back in the, in the late part of the 20th century. It's weird being in the 21st century now, where there was, there was an effect, a minority, something, I'm trying to think of a, a quick parallel, something akin to Hamas with the Palestinian authority. So it's not the Kurdish people as such are terrorists, but there was a political faction that did things like car bombs and, you know, assassinations and this sort of thing in Turkey that, that I think, Erdogan and the Turks have been emphasizing disproportionately. In other words, 
you're right to say that they're trying to, Erdogan and company are trying to label all of the Kurdish people as a terrorist group in the same way that Benjamin Netanyahu will label all Palestinians as terrorists. That is wrong. It is not true. But I think it's also worth acknowledging that there is actually in this longstanding tension between the, the Turkish government and, and within Turkish politics and the Syrian Kurds. And that speaks to what I'm saying between nuance and kind of carte blanche. Exactly. You know, and so if you don't have the deftness of analysis, if you can't make those distinctions and you can't politically adjudicate those sorts of questions, then your answer is simply Erdogan's answer, which is they're all bad. Let's just eliminate them. That's right. But that's genocide. That's right. And as Catholics, we cannot ever support that. We can't support the the movement towards that. And we have to push towards political solutions and nuance that do not involve weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that's what these paragraphs in the catechism are saying. And, and to bring into terms of, you know, Catholic perspectives, moral decision-making and so forth, you know, what does this have to do with us? Well, what you'll hear is some people who are supportive of President Trump's unilateral decision will say, well, we don't want our, tr- our, our, we should pull our troops back. They should come home. They shouldn't be in these other places fighting these other wars, except we do have national security interests here. We do have a reason and a history and this nuance that you're calling for to take into consideration. I think the other thing we need to think about, too, is how this is the other side of a coin that we've discussed in the past. And the coin is about the tension between recognizing the sovereignty of nations and the role for humanitarian purposes and particularly to prevent or, or to mitigate genocide in this case, the role of intervening in, uh, in other parts of the world. And so I think of, you know, I think of the work of Samantha Power, for instance, and I know she has a new book out about her own sort of coming to an awareness about the Bosnian conflicts and, and about Rwanda and, and the lessons of history as she's written about so powerfully before. She's the former United States ambassador to the United Nations and somebody who is an expert in, in you know, intervention when it comes to questions of genocide. And so I think oftentimes the question is raised as it was in Bosnia and Rwanda. What is the line that has to be crossed? What are the factors that motivate our intervention or entering into another country or another part of the world? Here is the flip side of that coin, which is what are the conditions for us to justly, ethically, legally withdraw from a situation? And the way that this happened and precipitated so quickly and the way that President Trump was partnering, in effect, with um, with President Erdogan, I think was done in ways that reflect your summary reference to the catechism about crime and about mortal sin. But it raises bigger questions about the duty we have, the way that ethicists will refer to this is when we talk about valuation of just war theory, you have what what is leading up to the war. The classic examples are what factors are considered leading up to the war and what are the factors considered in the war. But there has been in recent decades Really, the last 50 years, ethicists have talked about uh, use post-bellum. What are the obligations and responsibilities for those combatants, those nations that are engaged in warfare after the war? And this is Iraq is the classic example. We go in, you know, under false pretenses, it's not a just war. You know, we can evaluate what's going on in the war. But then what are the criteria for us to continue to to be present, to build the nation back up, to, to seek security? And, and you saw this, of course, after devastatingly after World War One, which part partly led to the, you know, World War Two. It's also something you see, I think, in a positive way 
despite the atrocities of the United States' involvement with Japan in World War II, the way that Japan was rebuilt, as it were, after the fact. And in Germany, after World War II, for that matter, you know, the communists notwithstanding. So this is going to be an ongoing conversation for us. You know, every time that we come on this program, we say we're probably going to end up talking about this segment more as the season progresses. This is just basically a beginning conversation, and we've, we've tried to have a little bit of sort of Catholic moral teaching brought into the conversation about this. But as this is unfolding, we ask for you to be praying for that situation. We certainly will be as well. I echo the prayers as well, but I also think we should take up Pope Francis's invitation to pragmatism as well. And so prayers don't mean anything if we don't do anything about them. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the whole thoughts and prayers after gun violence. So I, I would also encourage too, you know, prayer is important, but, you know, as we're looking to regional elections in our country, this fall, and as we're looking to a national election next year, I think this is where forming our consciences for faithful citizenship becomes important. You know, as, as David, you pointed out in the catechism, like we're talking about our representative leaders, especially in the executive branch that bears a lot of power, tremendous power, committing mortal sins and, and international crimes on our behalf. And that needs to be factored in. So don't be one-issue people, be multi-issue people as we are, you know, upholding the nuance that, that you've named for us in this segment. But I think this is one among many other issues we need to take into consideration into our formed consciences in light of this Catholic moral teaching we're talking about. So prayers, yes. Action, yes. Well said. Good to be with you, Dan. And with your spirit. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should definitely look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have four seasons plus of episodes for you to go back and listen to. And thank you for listening.